HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn, New American Cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Lisa Gross, the CEO and founder of the League of Kitchens. But first, a question. Yeah. As a daughter of a Korean immigrant and a Jewish New Yorker, when you want soup, which way do you go? <laughs> um, well, they're two great soup traditions, so it all depends. Um, you know, Good chicken, matzo ball soup, nothing can beat it. But I also love making and eating um, denjang jjigae, which is a fermented miso stew. And um, another one of my childhood comfort foods is actually myukguk, which is a seaweed soup. Yeah. So it's, it's good to have options. Yeah. <laughs> Did you always feel like you blurred the lines of your parents, that you, you know, weren't Korean, you weren't Jewish, but you were this, you know, mudded version of the two? Yeah, well... You know, when I was growing up, I actually went to a Jewish day school until I was 13. So I was really the diversity of the school in some ways. (laughs) But um, so in many ways, when I was a kid, I identified much more with my Jewish side. But as I got older, um, really connected more to my Korean side. But I do think that experience of growing up within these two different cultures and moving between them has really affected me and actually has really influenced the development of the League of Kitchens, I sort of realized, you know, my mom's an immigrant. I really understand what it's like to be the daughter of an immigrant and sort of all these instructors that we've hired, they're kind of all my moms. (laughs) So it's sort of like my whole life has been training for working with them and understanding them. Yeah. um, Yeah. You know, it's hard to kind of like titularly uh, say what you do as a person because you are an artist, you're an educator, you do social entrepreneurship, you know, uh, and the League of Kitchens, which we'll talk about in a second more thoroughly, yeah. is this idea spawned off 
your own life. Yeah. Uh, you know, dealing with class, dealing with culture, dealing mm-hmm. with societal, you know, ideas of, you know, how, how a person's even tastes are constructed. Um, it's not to say you haven't worked in other kind of, you know, disciplines like the Boston Tree Party, which yeah. was actually how I met you. We, yeah. I think we were on a panel yep. for the Food Book Fair as... Yep. as food and Art yeah, Panel. Yeah. Yep. But the, talk to me a little bit about the Boston Tree Party. Sure. So my background is in participatory public art or what's sometimes called social practice, which is really about bringing together groups of people to engage in different kinds of experiences that often engage in social issues. So, And a lot of my projects have involved food in the past because food is just such a great way to kind of viscerally engage people immediately, um, and it always connects to everything. So the Boston Tree Party was a collaborative campaign to plant pairs of heirloom apple trees in publicly used spaces across greater Boston. And each pair of trees is planted and is being cared for by a specific community or group of communities, and the idea really was to create this citywide public urban orchard that connects all these diverse communities together and then becomes this symbol of a commitment to environmental and community health. And it was also a performance of a political party, and we launched with a big inauguration rally event with Central Asian barbecue and a marching band, and we had flags, and it was just playing with also ideas of American identity and um, the apple is this American symbol, but also one that's connected to the history of Boston. So, yeah, so sort of what, what's been fun about doing these kinds of projects in this space, in this sort of social practice world, is it allows you or it's allowed me and the participants in these projects to kind of do things that fall between worlds. Um, You know, that a nonprofit would probably have a difficult, uh, like a tree planting nonprofit would have difficulty finding the money and support to do a rally with a marching band and Central Asian barbecue and, you know, crazy flags. But... um, you know, similarly, so there's kind of this freedom to move between disciplines. And actually, I think that also connects to sort of my background and my upbringing is that, you know, to some extent growing up, I sort of both didn't feel like totally comfortable or the same with, you know, as the people in the Korean community or like the Jewish community that I knew. But at the same time, I felt comfortable sort of moving between those two worlds. And it was actually sort of a, a an important kind of moment of personal development to realize it wasn't that I didn't belong to either one, but it was that the power was being able to move between both. So I've actually kind of continued to find myself sort of moving between lots of worlds, whether that's cultural or disciplinary or, you know, different kinds of sectors. But I mean, also creating a space that has some kind of longevity to it rather than having to be temporal all the time. The the great thing about the Boston Tree Party is, you know, you planted, what, 15,000 trees no so 70 trees 15,000 <laughs> apples, apples will be produced every year yeah. so i mean th- these aren't you know again these flash in the pan ideas yeah, they're, yeah. they're something to you know build a community out of and yeah. you know maybe those are those soft places yeah those comfort zones right, that you're, right. you're looking for yeah and i think my work has continued to be about bringing together diverse groups of people in different ways yeah, often I think I spend a lot of time on the person before the project, but th- this project, the League of Kitchens, <laughs> it's just so immense and it, it spreads. You know, talk about you know moving from culture to society to cult. I, yeah. th- there's so much to it. There's so much depth aside from it just being really interesting cooking mm. classes that I, I, I want to devote as much time as possible. <laughs> so enough babbling. Okay. The League of Kitchens. W- how did this idea form for you? Yeah. So. 
At its heart, what it is is we're working with immigrants who are really exceptional home cooks to teach small cooking workshops in their own home kitchens. And these are really intimate workshops. There are just five students in each one. They're intensive and immersive. They last for five and a half hours on a Saturday or Sunday. They include two meals. So when you arrive, you're served a light lunch. Um, there's a big celebratory meal at the end. Um, it's filled with hands-on cooking instruction because when, you know, there are that few people, everyone has to pitch in. And, you know, so that those structures of that experience create something really intimate and I think something special in terms of a social and cultural experience in, in addition to a culinary learning experience. Um, and this, the idea for this came directly out of my personal experience in that uh, when I was growing up, my Korean grandmother lived with my family and was always cooking this amazing Korean food. But whenever I would sort of try to help her, or show some interest uh, in the kitchen, she would say, oh, don't worry about cooking. You should go study. Studying is more important. Because for her, you know, she didn't really value her own or highly value her own cooking skills and really wanted me to have opportunities she didn't, which I obviously appreciate. But what that means is I never learned to cook <coughs> Korean food, and neither did my mother for the same reason. So after college, you know, I was living on my own, cook, starting to really cook a lot, really fell in love with cooking, um, wanted to cook Korean food. But by that time, my Korean grandmother had passed away. I couldn't learn from my mother. So I sort of started to teach myself from the Internet or from cookbooks. But first of all, it just felt really sad not to be learning from a person. And second, you know, no matter how closely I followed a recipe, it always felt like something was missing. Nothing came out as good as my grandmother would make it. And that's the thing, you know, so often the difference between a solidly good rendition of a dish and a really exceptional, amazing rendition is very subtle. And it's those little subtleties or techniques or tricks or kind of um, ways of doing things that you really can only learn from a person. And so I sort of had this fantasy, like, wouldn't it be great if there was a Korean grandmother I could learn to cook from her own family recipes in her own kitchen. And then I sort of had this fantasy, wouldn't it be amazing if there were, you know, quote unquote, grandmothers from all over the world who you could cook with and learn their family recipes and cook with them in their own home kitchen. So that was sort of the initial seed idea of the League of Kitchens. I mean, how did you seek out your new Korean grandmother? Because <laughs> you have Sunny now, who yeah. is, is, seems tremendous. And I mean, I've been yeah. reading over her, you know, menus and yeah. her, the structure of her class and yeah. just seems so endearing. She's incredible. So basically, um, between that kind of early idea, which was, you know, almost 10 years ago, and now when we're launching this whole business, you know, a lot of things happened. And one of the things that happened, too, is that the idea evolved into being more than just about the cooking, really using food and cooking as also a way to connect people and share culture and create this sort of meaningful and special social experience. And also the name, the League of Kitchens, you know, obviously is an allusion to the League of Nations and sort of this idea of creating this shadow United Nations of, you know, women in their... Or, also men, potentially we're open to hiring men, <laughs> but, you know, immigrants in their kitchens around the city kind of representing their culture. Um, so, yeah, so in terms of finding our instructors, we've just done a huge amount of outreach, contacting as many different nonprofits, community groups, language schools, faith communities, professional groups, any kind of organization or entity that we think might be able to connect us to possible instructors. So actually, I mean, Or you could have just gone to Bayside and walked around <laughs> and seen Crocs on stoops and said... What yeah. do you have fermenting in there? Well, what's really interesting about Sunny and actually Korean culture is that 
Um, Korean culture is actually quite insular and quite homogeneous and suspicious of outsiders. And the thing about finding a good instructor for what we're doing is not only do they have to be a really amazing and knowledgeable cook, they have to be willing to host a group of Americans who are strangers in their home uh, and also be comfortable teaching them and holding their own and telling their story and, you know, really being the one leading this experience. So... You know, we had a lot of difficulty finding a Korean instructor. And finally, we reached out to this small community organization in Bayside called the Korean uh, Community Center of New York that Sunny is actually the executive director of and founder. And, you know, we asked her if she knew somebody who might be good. And she's like, oh, actually, I might be interested. (laughs) But what's really interesting about her is that, you know, she's in her early 70s. So she has that kind of generational knowledge where she makes her own soy sauce and and denjang, fermented miso paste from scratch. You know, she really has that kind of traditional artisanal knowledge. But she's a trained social worker and her husband is a retired minister. Um, And they've lived all over the U.S. Like he was a minister at a congregation in West Virginia where there are very few Koreans. Um, They lived in Baltimore and Kentucky. So because, you know, she's had this life of being a pastor's wife and also the social worker, she's much more open to Americans and to, you know, strangers and to kind of being engaged with a larger community than a typical, uh, I think, Korean woman of her age in particular. And also it's just really unusual to find someone of her age with that knowledge who speaks English. Yeah. So it felt sort of like the holy grail when we found her. I mean, I mean, with that past, you know, uh, moving around the country... I'm assuming she makes kimchi. Yeah. You know, and I know that she makes galbi for one of her menus, the Korean short ribs. Have you seen that change? Have you seen that Americanized rather than stick, you know, true to her Korean roots? Yeah. Um, You know, she sticks pretty closely to her (laughs) Korean roots and to sort of the traditional ways of doing things. Uh, which is one thing that we're looking for in our instructors. I mean, you know, all of our instructors live in America, right? So they all like, well, you know, our Afghan instructor who basically cooks only Afghan food at home. She has like six sugar cereals on the shelf for her son. <laughs> you know, like everybody lives in America and is integrating things or, you know, find certain things that makes life easier for them. But the instructors that we're choosing are ones who really have a deep knowledge of the traditional way of doing things. India, Bangladesh, Greece, Lebanon. I mean, you're really spanning the globe here. And uh, I think you had told me that this this is one of the prime times. This is the biggest influx of immigration into New York in what the past. Yeah, you know, since the turn of the century. Yeah. yeah. New York City right now is close to one third foreign born and Queens is actually close to 50 percent foreign born. And that's a larger percentage of the city's population than any time in history since the turn of the century. And, you know, New York actually right now, too, is statistically the most diverse place on the planet with people from close to 200 countries living here. So it's also the perfect place to do something like this. And, you know, and I think when you live here, you know, most people who live here love that diversity. And but the thing is that there's often very little opportunity to have really meaningful interaction with people from other backgrounds. You know, most of the interactions are in kind of service experiences, like going to a restaurant or the guy at the bodega or the shop. And that's true, too, between immigrant groups. You know, there's often very little meaningful interaction between immigrant groups. So I think that's one of the really special things that the League of Kitchens offers is this opportunity to be a guest in someone's home, to really get to know them and learn about their experience. And there, it just there's this incredible intimacy that develops that just feels really 
unique. And I feel like you don't know if it's a... Uh, it might be your neighbor. Yeah. Because I, I look at the locations yeah. of these classes, Bay Ridge, yeah. Bayside, you know, Bay Ridge again, Kew Gardens, Rigo Park, East Elmhurst. I mean, yeah. you, you intentionally chose Brooklyn and Queens. Well, but, they chose us, sort of. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, instructor, the instructors that we chose, because this is totally based on finding the right people versus... You know, there's certainly there are certain cuisines we'd love to find people mm-hmm. who could represent. But really, the cuisines ended up being the cuisines of the best people we found. And this is where they live, you know. Immigrants in New York City live in Brooklyn. I mean, they also live in Staten Island, the Bronx. But just so far, you know, all of them have lived in Brooklyn and Queens. Excellent. We're going to take a quick break, come back, and venture into the homes of these wonderful cooks around Brooklyn and Queens. You've been listening Great. to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Again, Michael Harlan, Terakel, here today with Lisa Gross of The League of Kitchens. I feel like you need an echo effect with The League of Kitchens, too. <laughs> or cape. some gavel. Yeah. I don't know. Something to make it seem uh, more officious. Uh-huh. Not that it is, because, yeah. I mean, you're in people's homes. Yeah. You're literally, you know, going to Bay Ridge, Bayside, yeah. and, yeah. you know, inside somebody's, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know humility. Yeah, um, yeah. Sunny, I know she has an amazing garden. She has all these, you know, wonderful affects. I mean, talk about these houses, too, the yeah, smells, the sights. Sure. I mean, definitely one of the most unique things about this experience is being a guest in someone's home. Because you just, there's in, immediately this intimacy that's created and this sense that, you know, every time I just go to their home for like a training or to drop something off and they're like, please eat this thing I made. You have to try it. It just feels like such a privilege to be there and... They're so generous, you know, in their spirit and the way they do everything. And, um, you know, it's a everyone has modest New York City apartments, small kitchens, but it's totally fine for five students. Um, and you really get to, you know, see their family photos, see their art. Um, a number of our instructors are quite religious in their life, like our Indian instructor. She has an altar um, in her apartment, where she, and it's actually very connected to her cooking. Uh, because whenever she cooks, she always makes an offering of something that she's made first on her altar. 
Uh, so you really get to see into people's lives and, you know, they talk about their families, their kids, you get to meet them often, you know, different instructors, their families will eat with the students. You know, you end up feeling like, oh, when you leave, everyone's hugging when you yeah. leave. <laughs> so it's like, this is your new mom or your new aunt or, you know, best family friend. I mean, just even reading about some of the instructors, uh, Jeanette, you know, who lives in Bay Ridge and she's your Lebanese instructor. Yeah. I mean, there you're already kind of sold. <laughs> I mean, and I don't mean to say yeah. sold because, yeah. I mean, you do pay for these workshops. Right. Right. Um, but you just want to be a part of that yeah. so bad. Yeah, and she is just such a great host. She loves hosting people. She's so bubbly. She loves sharing her culture and singing and dancing. And, um, you know, her workshops just really feel so festive. Uh, and, you know, the other thing that we provide to our students actually uh, is... Um, in-depth shopping guides created by each of our instructors. So as part of our training process, we go shopping with our instructors to all their favorite shops, and we document what they buy where, both the things that are on the menu, but also other things that they really like. And it's just, these are magical in and of themselves. You know, how many times have probably all of us gone into a culturally specific supermarket or shop and been like, this is amazing. Which of these hundred varieties of this one thing should I be buying? I have no idea. And, you know, so that's also information that we provide to our students from our instructors. I mean, you have other takeaways and, you know, yeah. that, that also makes it replicable. Yes. You, you take them a booklet with the recipes yes. themselves, kind of a starter kit. Yeah. So the starter kits are really cool. The starter kits um, have specialty ingredients and spices enough to recreate all of the recipes you've learned at home just by going to your local supermarket and buying the vegetables or meat or whatever. So it obviously differs from cuisine to cuisine, but like, for instance, our Lebanese instructor, her starter kit has 14 items in it. Our Afghan instructor, hers has 10. You know, like, they're really substantial. and They really, I think, allow people to go home and actually make what they've learned because I know I've, I've had the experience where I go to a cooking class it's great, but then I have to go out and buy 10 new ingredients to make the dishes I've learned, and then I never do it. But if, you know, I, the idea is that if you can make it once and you have everything to make that easy, then it goes well, then it'll feel worthwhile to go out and buy this. You know what's kind of funny? I love Essex Market. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I do go to this little shop called Bubuki sometimes, you know, which is Greek yeah, food. Uh-huh. And then finding out about your Greek instructor, yes. Despina, that is her daughter. Yeah. And I always eat that food. I'm like, I want to know how to make this at uh-huh. home. Uh-huh. Now, now I have a way to yeah. do so. Well, actually, the way we found Despina, our Greek instructor, was a friend of mine is friends with her daughter who runs Babuki and told uh, her daughter, Rona, about this. She's like, oh, my mom would be great for this. Of course, she is. And actually, Despina makes a lot of food for the stand. She makes a carrot cake and brings it in every week. Um, she'll often make the um, lentil soup. Um, and of course, her daughter's using her recipes too. So it's kind of exciting to be able to go to the source and, and you know, learn from her mom. Yamini is your Indian chef. Yeah. Um, Nawida is your Afghani chef. Uh-huh. I mean, so you have this set of six women right now. Mm-hmm. You've told me you're actually introducing two more soon. Yes, we're, we're in the process of hiring our next group of four. And we've actually hired one woman from Argentina and one from Trinidad so far. But we're still looking for more instructors. If anyone listening knows someone who would be good, <laughs> please contact us. <laughs> I mean, does some of this, uh, is some of it guided by what you want to find out about, what you want to eat? Is there, are there certain cultures that are devoid right now in New York that you can't find that instructor for that you're really searching? Yeah, well, you know, we would love to find someone from Morocco or Tunisia. 
we would love to find an Ethiopian instructor. We'd love to find a Mexican or Peruvian or Brazilian instructor, um, a Vietnamese or um, Burmese instructor. So I think those are some of our top uh, wish list cuisines to offer. But, you know, the people that we've hired, we really hired because they themselves are so exceptional in terms of their knowledge and their personalities and their potential as teachers. So our, the cuisines we offer are really guided by the people that we end up finding. Yeah. And, you know, these people, even though they're amazing home cooks and such, you know, uh, I'm assuming outgoing people. Yeah. You still do some training with them. Yeah. And that's actually really important because everyone we've hired, they're exceptional, knowledgeable home cooks. They're really warm, uh, wonderful hosts and have the potential to be great teachers. But many of them, even if they've taught something, haven't taught cooking before. In fact, I think none of them had. So that's an important, you know, a special skill. So the training really allows them to practice teaching cooking. And we do a lot of coaching. Um, you know, we have several people on staff who are professional chefs. Uh, also, part of the training actually is working um, with a professional recipe writer and tester, Liz Tarpey, who's was a editor at the Food Network and has worked on lots of cookbooks. So she works individually with each instructor to take their informal, intuitive, you know, pinch of this, pinch of that recipes to turn them into standardized, well-written, tested recipes that will work when you get home. But what's cool is that at the workshop, you get to see how it's done by the instructor and you get to really see a very experienced, talented home cook do that pinch of this, pinch of that, taste this, smell this, feel that, which is so important in terms of becoming a really good cook. But then you also know, okay, but I have this really well-written recipe I can go home and cook from. So In Regal Park, yeah. um, you know, you have Nobita cooking you Afghani food. Yeah. And I know you call them all home cooks, but yeah. tell me a little bit more about Noida because sure. she, she was cooking for obviously much more than a small <laughs> family. Yeah, so Noida, our Afghan instructor, she's actually our youngest instructor. She's 34. All our other instructors are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. But she cooks like someone who's in her 50s, 60s, or 70s because uh, when she lived in Afghanistan and then later in Pakistan, um, she lived with her mother-in-law's family, which was a household of 35 people. And she was in charge of cooking three meals a day for this household of 35 people. And she says, oh, yeah, and there are usually maybe four or five guests at any meal. You know, you never knew. So, yeah, it was about, you know, maybe 40. So when you do that three times a day, I mean, it's, you can't imagine a better kind of cooking training. So she's also our fastest cook. When you yeah. watch her cook, <laughs> it's like, wait, Noita, slow down. You have to explain everything more so people know what you're doing. Because, I mean, if you're cooking three meals a day for 35 people, you have to get pretty fast. So, and these recipes, yeah. I mean, also there are options, vegetarian. Yes, and non-vegetarian for, for every instructor. Um, let's start talking about the food, too, because, yeah. I mean, I was so intrigued by so many dishes. Some very simple, like basmati rice. Yeah. You know, simply with homemade ghee. Uh-huh. And I've tried to make this before. Yeah. And it's good, but it's never like how I want yeah. it to be. Yeah. That's the thing. I mean, I think by taking these classes with these women, you learn all of those subtle techniques and approaches and tricks that I wished I had known, you know, for Korean cooking that really elevate something from sort of good to amazing. Um, and also the way we craft our menus for each workshop, they're usually between five and six dishes. There's really always something that a beginner could feel like, oh, I could go home and make this today. Or like anyone could feel like, oh, this could be a weeknight dinner. 
And there's all there are always things that are much more advanced that a professional chef could feel like, oh, I'm learning new things. And also the other thing is we always try to put things in the menu that you can't get in restaurants. That you can really only have in someone's home. What what are some of those? Yeah. So some of those, like for instance, our Indian instructor, she makes um this dish of stuffed little vegetables that make this gravy. They're stuffed with spices and toasted chickpea flour and they're like baby eggplants and uh, shallots and tomatoes. And it's a very special dish that she learned from her father um, that, you, you know, like many of the dishes our instructors teach, they can't be served in restaurants because they're just too labor intensive and too expensive in terms of the amount of spices or kind of quality ingredients. And they th- use. this is Afsari, yes? This is actually Yami, oh, our Yami. Indian instructor. Gotcha. Yeah. So Afsari is from Bangladesh and she teaches Bengali cuisine. And Yamini, and she's actually Muslim, and so she's sharing that whole culture. And then Yamini is from South India, from Mumbai, and her, she's Hindu Brahmin. Um, and so, you know, these are two very rich, different culinary and, you know, cultures in general. See, even I mixed up the distinction between <laughs> some of those cuisines. Because, yeah. I mean, you see you see a chicken curry, and then you hear about a dal, and sometimes you yeah. think that's in the same restaurant. Right, right. But they're two distinctly different yeah. cooks and houses. Yeah, or the dal that Afsari teaches, which is a very it's East Indian kind of dal, is very different from the dal Yamini makes that uses fresh curry leaves. It's a South Indian dal. Um, but you know, also some of the dishes that we off that the instructors teach that you can't get a restaurant sometimes because they're too humble, you know, that no restaurant would think like this is worth putting on our menu, but that is so delicious and special. Like in a weed, our Afghan instructor, her on her vegetarian menu, she makes this red kidney bean dish that's served with white rice and the white rice is cooked with whole cloves, um, whole cloves of garlic and it's just this really incredible aromatic rice and then this very flavorful red bean dish and she said this is what every child in Afghanistan will say is their favorite food it's like I don't know the french fries and burgers of Afghanistan yeah. it's like the the um, like comfort food of, of Afghan children uh, and she's like oh yeah no restaurant would ever serve this it's so easy it's so but it's not it's actually they're both kind of complicated to make and really amazing and I mean, you look at something like Muzahara, too. You know, it's, yeah. it's lentils and rice, and it yeah. seems like such a simple thing. And I've had it many different restaurants. Yeah. Um, and the iterations are right. kind of endless. Right. I mean, there's something special about having somebody's Muzahara. Yeah, exactly. Or like our Lebanese instructor, Jeanette, you know, she teaches on her non vegetarian menu tabbouleh. Okay, we've all had tabbouleh. It's so common and ubiquitous now. But her tabbouleh is so different from any that I'd ever had before because she. Her tabbouleh is mostly parsley and then shaved romaine. There's just like a teeny bit of bulgur. Um, She takes her parsley, after washing it and drying it, separates it into these tiny bouquets where the parsley leaves are all aligned so that she can finely shave (laughs) the parsley and there's no stem. So it's this really fluffy tabbouleh because if you get it outside, you know, at a restaurant or store, they just put in a food processor and so it gets very clumped. There's a lot of stem. She also puts tons of lemon, which is often too expensive for a lot of restaurants to do. And it's just like this different beast, you know? It's like just learning her to... And she also eats it with romaine hearts, which is the traditional Lebanese way. Um, You dip the romaine hearts, like an edible spoon, into the tabbouleh and eat it. And it's so good. I made it twice last week. I just... I actually had a dream about it last week. Yeah. It's like that good. And that's... So also, we often will feature dishes that are familiar 
but that the way the instructor does it is just so special and such a step above what you could experience not in someone's home. You know, I, I can't stop thinking about those Mantus. You know, <laughs> I, I haven't had them yet, yeah. but just even reading the description, yeah. first of all, the crossover on, you know, so many ingredients. It, yeah. It's, you know, dumplings simply filled with meat and onions. Yeah, you our s- Afghan instructors. And then yeah. it has, what, a tomato kind of chana dal sauce. Yeah, and then that on top of that is a garlic yogurt sauce and then fresh chopped cilantro. And the garlic onion um, mixture inside these dumplings are handmade. So she makes the dough from scratch and then actually uses an Italian pasta roller to roll it out to make the dumpling skins, which she said those like metal hand crank pasta rolls from Italy have been ubiquitous in Afghanistan since the 70s. (laughs) She's like, oh, yeah, every household in Afghanistan uses this, Uh, which is interesting because also it's not you don't need electricity and yeah. it's it's one of those interesting things you learn but those dumplings are just unbelievable and when you make them with her you realize oh no restaurant could do this it's just so labor intensive and time consuming to do it the right way but that actually is a food that at any afghan party you always have to have mantu otherwise it's not a party and you talk about this yogurt garlic sauce and then yeah. that transports me to uh, you know tzatziki yeah and you know you're making you know meatballs with tzatziki and yeah in our greek workshop yeah have you ever had all these foods in one place at the same time and Not seen <laughs> all the similarities in yeah. the ingredients and techniques right well what is interesting is when you look at the the countries that we're covering in this first group with the exception of korea they're all actually adjacent like if you start with greece and then lebanon um, you know, and then Afghanistan, Bangladesh, India, um, and then Korea. What's interesting is all those countries, except for Korea, have very strong hospitality traditions. And that's one thing I realized in terms of looking for this first group of instructors, sort of an intrepid group who'd be willing to take a chance with us, this new company, and invite strangers into their home. It makes sense that the people who would feel comfortable are people from countries that have a very strong tradition of hosting strangers in your home. So that that's sort of one interesting thing I realized. And then Sunny, because of her background as a pastor's wife and a social worker, I think is sort of unique. Yeah. Now, where's your Jewish grandmother? Working on it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah we've actually done some auditions with some uh, lovely Russian women, but they just haven't worked out. I mean, so that's another thing is that we, we are very careful and rigorous in in terms of our vetting and hiring process because the whole success of this endeavor is finding people who are really exceptional so you know to find this group of six instructors we probably did info sessions with about 120 people and we did in-home cooking auditions with about 20 25 people so because you know the thing is that Everyone we did in-home cooking auditions with was a really nice person, really warm. I felt really bad saying <laughs> no to them. I know they, in my head it's like American <laughs> Idol or one of those game shows where you have three judges and big yeah. X's when they just don't right. make it. But the thing is we're looking for people who are not just good home cooks who can like make a good meal, but who really have that kind of deep knowledge and passion. And that is unique. You know, like all of our instructors, they care so much about their ingredients. They all have very specific stores they go to for their meat, for their spices, for their grain. This one very specific brand of rice that they only buy for this reason. You know, it's interesting. Like there's so much discussion and kind of the larger food movement about sourcing and kind of local produce and all of that. And so it's interesting to see these women who are not part of that conversation at all care so much about their ingredients and the freshness and the quality um and it's really inspiring 
Yeah, I mean, how how do you inject yourself in their lives? I mean, when when they're going to a shop getting ingredients, do you tell yeah. them where you purchase those ingredients otherwise? Or do you kind of just let them live the lives that they've always lived? Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing that's been cool is just getting all the women together. So we meet together as a group like once every six weeks to kind of discuss feedback. And, and one thing that's cool is they all bring food to this <laughs> meeting, you know. So it's sort of this international smorgasbord of incredible baked goods and sweets from all over the world. It's just the best. Um, and it's been really interesting to see them kind of get to know each other and learn from each other. So as part of the training, they all teach practice workshops, and they all attend the practice workshops with two other instructors. So, like, for instance, our Lebanese instructor, she'd never had Korean food before, and she went to our Korean instructor's workshop. I was like, oh, I loved the sweet potato noodles. They were so good. And that, that's cool and exciting to see. Yeah, I know. We joke around about fusion, and <laughs> all, all we had to do was introduce a Korean grandmother to a Lebanese. Yeah. We, we had it already. You <laughs> right, know? right, yeah. It, it's, it's amazing to see, you know, Brooklyn Queens is such epicenters of, of so many cultures, so yeah. many nations represented. Yeah. Um, what do you hope people take away from this, aside from just the recipes of that specific yeah. instructor? Yeah, well, I think there are sort of three things. You know, one is we want to offer this very rich, deep culinary learning experience and exceptional eating experience. But I think just as important are the cultural learning that's possible when you really get to talk to someone and meet their family and be in their home and hear about their experience. And um, and then lastly, it's just sort of this very unique, intimate social experience that comes with being with five people. Maybe you know some of them, maybe you don't. And the instructor for five and a half hours. I mean, how often do we do that ever now with anyone, right? Spend five and a half hours with a group of people. I don't know if I even <laughs> sleep that long anymore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I think w that amount of time actually allows for something special to unfold and happen. Because everyone in the beginning, every workshop starts a little awkwardly. Where people are like, oh, I'm in this person's home. I feel a little uncomfortable. I don't know these other people. And by the end... Everyone is hugging, feels like they got to know everybody. It's like something magical happens during that time. And um, I think that's really exciting and really special to combine that with the cultural and culinary learning. Jeanette, Sunny, Afsari, Yamini, Noida, and Despina. Stop, oh, and it rhymed. It was great. Stop <laughs> yeah, by and work. see these ladies in their home, and you're hoping to find many more cultures yes. and many more men and women yeah, from around sure. the world to share their cuisine. Yeah. Check out it's leagueofkitchens.com. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, thank you again, Lisa. Thank this you is such so much, an amazing project, and I can't wait to <laughs> stop by one of these Love ladies' to host homes. You. Yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> Excellent. Go take a class. <laughs> See you in Brooklyn, Queens. You've been listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.